As we begin, I want to ask you, what is your purpose? If someone were to ask you your purpose in all of life, the foundational purpose of your, that your heart beats, that you live, what would be the one-liner that you would give? Or would it take a while for you to answer? Or do you know what your purpose is? I hope you see this morning that our main purpose, our main purpose in all of life is to glorify God. To glorify God through the transformation of our own lives by the gospel of Christ, by the good news of Jesus, and then also to proclaim that, to share that with others. To share that with others. As you'll see this morning, we're going to be doing a review. Uh, If you're visiting with us, uh, you might think you're going to be lost, but I hope to teach in such a way that that you will not be lost. But the reason that we're doing this this morning is... I think Crosspoint does a wonderful job of walking through the Word and providing many opportunities for us to learn. In Sunday school, as uh, we indicated, we're going through Luke. We're walking through the book of Luke. In the last several months in preaching, we've walked through 12 minor prophets, we've walked through the book of Titus, and then we've walked through many parables in the, in the book of Luke. But we know that the purpose of the Christian life is not simply to learn, is it? The purpose of the Christian life is to be transformed by the gospel, to share the gospel with others. Paul even says to be uh, puffed up is nothing. If you have love, but you have knowledge, that if you don't have love, but you have knowledge, you have nothing. And so it is a good question to ask and something I've asked myself over the last couple of weeks. I feel like I've spent a great deal of time in the things that we've shared on Sunday mornings. But I begin to ask myself, have those things transformed my life? Have they taken root in my heart in such a way that I'm living it out and it consumes my mind on a daily basis? Am I different because of it? And so this morning I want to take the opportunity to just slow down. To just slow down and to gaze into the word and to gaze into our own hearts and ask, is the Holy Spirit changing us? Are we not only learning, but are we also being transformed? Are we glorifying God more and more as our hearts are conforming more to his word? So that's the goal this morning. We're always in danger of extremes in our faith, right? That's what we tend to as, as humans, as people. We tend towards extremes. We can, we can oversimplify our faith by saying, well, all you have to do is say a prayer, sign a card, and, and then you're in. But Jesus says that you should count the cost. And Paul also says that the riches of God are immeasurable and that we should be filled with all the fullness of God. The, the Christian faith, yes, the gospel is simple, but God is not simple. God is majestic and huge, and being filled with him is a big thing. And so we want to remain simple, but it's not simplistic in every sense. But we can go to the other extreme, and we can overcomplicate the faith, right? So you need to memorize scripture, read the Bible through in a year, or even in a shorter amount of time, three months. Give to the poor locally. Take at least one mission trip a year. You need to give to Annie Armstrong, Lottie Moon, Georgia Barnett, sponsor a compassion child. You need to make sure you're nurturing your marriage, training your children, and then you also, in the midst of that, need to make sure that you're providing well for your family. The Christian life can become incredibly complicated and overwhelming at times, can it? Does it feel that way sometimes? And so every now and then, we need to slow down and say, why does our heart beat? 
What is the essence of the Christian faith? What's our purpose in all of this? You see, everything that we do, all the teaching that we've done the last year, two years, ten years, the whole purpose of the Christian life is that you might glorify God. That you might honor Him. And then in the midst of that, all the learning and the difficulty, the trial and what seems like overwhelming, it's part of conforming more and more into Christ's image and glorifying God more and more. For several years, the, the mantra at Crosspoint has been what? What's our purpose? Somebody help me. Yeah, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Landon used the falsetto voice, which I will not attempt right now. But he would sing it and say, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you're visiting with us, you may not have been here then. And if you were here, you were here. In some ways, you may have forgotten that or, or, or lost focus in that and say, where did we get that from? You see, all that we say, it needs to be based in the Word. And so I want to help you this morning by sharing just a few passages as we begin on why glorifying God is the purpose of all that we do. All that we do. Let me share a few scriptures with you. These are in your notes and you can follow along there. If you think I might have twisted it and you need to use your own Bible, well, check it later because we're going to move fast. <clears throat> I promise I've tried to be intentional with not misquoting the scripture. Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7. God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created. Why? For my glory, whom I formed and made. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. The Lord says, Wise people should not boast that they're wise. Powerful people should not boast that they are powerful. Rich people should not boast that they are rich. If people want to boast, they should boast about this. They boast that they understand and know me. They should boast that they understand and know me and that I, the Lord, act out of faithfulness, fairness, and justice in all the earth and that I desire people to do these things, says the Lord. You see, we are not to boast in ourselves, but we're to boast in God who created us, who sustains us. This is not just a new t an Old Testament thing. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. For he, being God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we might be holy and unblemished in his sight and love. He did this by predestining us to adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the pleasure of his will. Why? To the praise of his glory, of the glory of his grace that he has freely bestowed on us in his dearly loved son. The reason he saved you is so that you might bring him glory. This is why he works in your heart. This is why he shows you love. It's for his glory. Jude 24 through 25. Now to the one who is able to keep you from falling and to cause you to stand rejoicing. Notice that he works in your life. He causes you to stand before him in holiness so that you might also rejoice without blemish before his glorious presence. To the only God, our Savior, through Christ Jesus, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time and now for all eternity. Amen. Is it clear? What is your purpose? Why did God create you? Why did He work in your life, believer? You who have called on the name of Christ. Is it so that everything would work out in your life and so that you would just feel more peace? 
so that he would give you the good job, so that you would have the beautiful picture-perfect family, send out nice Christmas cards that have verses on them. No, it's for his glory. And then why does this matter so much? Because life is difficult and sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes your family's not the picture-perfect family. Things aren't always perfect. And in those times, how do you explain it? How do you make sense of life? It's not about you. It's about His glory. It's about His end. The good thing is that He loves you. And so even in the midst of difficulty, of trial, and of suffering, you may not understand why, but you know this. You know that He loves you and that He's about good and about His glory. And so even in the midst of those things, He's working in your life and He's working to bring Himself glory through you. But the final thing of all we do in life, it is all for His glory. So, as we've walked through uh, these many books, what I hope that you see and what I want to show you this morning is that in the Minor Prophets, whether it be those books or whether it be uh, the book of Titus or whether it be the parables, God is using His Word and desires to use His Word so that our hearts conform more fully to Him and so that in our lives we bring Him glory. And so while we'll discuss many topics sometimes, different parts of our life that need to conform more fully to Him and need to change, the final thing is Him, His glory, bringing Him glory through our lives, through our lives. So as we move into our our, our various texts this morning, we'll begin with the minor prophets. We walked through all of these several months ago, but I want to just show you a couple aspects to summarize these, some points from them this morning. And we'll begin in the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Haggai is after Zephaniah, which I know you know, all know where that is, and then before Zechariah in the minor prophets. If you're using the Bible that I use, it's on page 791. Page 791. The book of Haggai. And in the Minor Prophets, we have, uh, the context is usually throughout all of them, we have a people that God has chosen for himself. Much like a marriage, except in this case, there actually is a perfect marriage partner. Um, God has chosen his people for himself. But his people have often been rebellious. They have not obeyed him in every way. In fact, they've often worshipped other gods, sinned in, in drastic ways. And so God is coming to his people through these prophets and challenging them to return to him, to return to him. So the first thing we see, lessons in glorifying God from the minor prophets, is we glorify God by examining ourselves being examined, and turning from our sin. Examining ourselves, being examined, and then turning from our sin. Look at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1 of Haggai. The Lord says to the prophet, to his people, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? The people have built up their own houses, but they have not built up the house of the Lord that was destroyed. 
which God has told them to do. And so he says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Look, look on yourselves. Look at what's going on in your lives. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. The basic thing is that the people have sinned. The people have not obeyed God. And so what has God done to try to get their attention? First of all, in everything they do, they reap satisfaction. They're working trying to provide for themselves. They're doing everything they know how to do. They're they're planting their fields. They have drink and all these things, but they find themselves never being satisfied. And so what's happening with them is they have no significant productivity in their lives. I'm sure some of you feel that way sometimes. It doesn't matter how much you do, you feel like you can never get ahead and never get everything done. This is how these people felt. They were never satisfied and then no matter how much they did, they couldn't couldn't get enough. And so God has attempted to highlight their sin by taking some of the fruitfulness away from them. And the people are miserable. And so God simply says, look at your ways. Look at what's going on in your life. And what that's supposed to do is to lead them to say, to repent, to turn from their sin. Another way that God has attempted to highlight their sin is by by sending them prophets. So God has said, consider your ways, but he's also using others to to speak to them and try to point out their sin. And I just want to make some application here for our body, for us as believers. We glorify God when we examine our hearts and our lives. Are we obeying God in every aspect? Are we surrendering to Him in the ways that He's leading us? And the decisions we're making throughout life, how we spend our money, how we lead our families, so the, the trips, the, even vacations or things. Are we surrendering every aspect of our lives to the Lord and to His leadership? And I want to ask you this question. What would others say about what you're doing? Sometimes this is a helpful evaluative measure for me. When I'm trying to figure out, Lord, am I, am I walking with you? Maybe I'm thinking about making a purchase or something like that. And it's not that I care so much about what others think. But it's, if people looked at my life, would they say that, and that these things that I have, would they say that it, my life is surrendered to the Lord? You see, it's implicit in the text that the people are to use what others are saying to determine if they're walking with the Lord. Prophets are coming and saying, you're not walking with the Lord. (laughs) And so for you, are you using other people as an evaluative measure? Not people who are judgmental and harsh, but people within the body who love you and care for you and who love the Lord. This is what we're to do as a body, as we walk together, is we're supposed to use accountability and others around us who desire our good to allow them to check our hearts. Because sometimes we're not very honest with ourselves, right? It's easy for us to lie to ourselves, to twist the truth, to convince ourselves that things are okay, to justify things. And so what the minor prophets challenge us to do is to use believers outside of just ourselves and to say, when you look at my life, are there areas you see that are 
not surrendered to the Lord? This takes vulnerability. It's easy to be embarrassed. But see, it's pride that keeps us from really asking. Which is just another sin. And so are you walking alongside other believers who will help you to see the sin in your life and help you to pour that out before the Lord and to repent and to turn from it? This is what the minor prophets challenge us to do, to examine ourselves, to be examined by others, and to turn from our sin. These people in the minor prophets, as we often saw, they did not turn from their sin, and they reap disaster. Disaster. So we glorify God, we honor Him when we look to our lives, when they allow others to peer into our hearts, and then we repent and we turn from our sin. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. He who trusts in his own heart and his mind is a fool, but he will walk in wisdom will be delivered. You see, you protect yourself when you will walk in wisdom, the wisdom of others as well. One of the quotes that was very important to me, and I hope will be helpful to you as we were walking through the Minor Prophets several months ago, and as a it's not necessarily a quote that's explicitly said in the Bible, but I believe it's biblical. It's from Augustine. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are weary until they find their rest in you. That's on your notes, and I hope that you will remember that and carry that with you. In the Minor Prophets, what we often see is that the people of God have turned from God and they've walked in sin and they find themselves in misery. Haggai expresses this. No matter how much they drink, they never have their fill. No matter how much they plant, they never get enough. It's never there. Here's what happens when you don't walk with the one who created you and who made you for himself. You will always be dissatisfied. You will put yourself in a cycle of sin and more and more sin because He didn't create you for that. He created you for Himself to worship Him, to glorify Him. And so until you surrender to Him, you will never be satisfied. Never. The second main point in the Minor Prophets, God brings glory to Himself By saving sinners. You see, even for us to examine ourselves, it must be the grace of God working in our lives to to do that. The minor prophets teach us about God calling people to Himself and them rejecting Him. They amazingly combine some of the most brutal passages, however, with some of the most hope-filled. This is what's incredible about the Minor Prophets. Remember when we started these passages? If you weren't here, maybe you've read them before. And it talks about the locusts that's just swarming on, the, on their lands because they've sinned. It talks about people, it's blood, guts, it's, it's dirty, it's like war terrain. And this is how they all begin. But amazingly, somehow, by the end of them, there's this hope-filled passage that God will restore everything. That He will draw the people to Himself and that He will restore them. How do you combine these elements into one, one book? It's like going to uh, New Orleans the day after Katrina and saying, everything's going to be fine. This is going to be restored and beautiful. To the people who are standing on their roofs waiting for someone to come pick them up. Can you imagine? 
to someone who's just wrecked their lives with gambling, their life away, with alcohol, their family's gone, their house is being repossessed, and you go to that man and say, it's, it's all going to be restored. This is what they do in one book. It's, in, it's incredible. What does this teach us? That God brings glory to Himself by saving sinners. You see, this is like God. This is the way God works. We constantly fail. We messed up. Even given a picture-perfect world, if we're there, it's no longer perfect. But yet God, in His grace, would redeem people. You see, Joel, in verse, chapter 2, verse 32 says, There will be a day that's coming that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He pictures a day when people, God's people, will be redeemed. And Jonah, and Jonah, we see something interesting. It's a, it's a wonderful story about a man who disobeys God, even tries to kill himself by getting thrown over, but it, it, he doesn't get that pleasure. A whale swallows him. And then three days later, he will be spit out onto dry land. He doesn't want to go tell these people about the Lord, but the Lord basically leads him and forces him to do that. And then Jonah, this sinful man who first rebels against God, after three days, three nights in this whale, goes and tells the people about God and they repent. Well, that's an interesting story, but there's more to it than just that story. You see, with Jesus, we see that this was a type, this was a foreshadowing of what was to come. Listen to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 through 41. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, Jonah is an imperfect illustration of what God would one day do through His perfect Son. Jesus, unlike Jonah, did not rebel against God and disobeyed Him, but Jesus, being God's perfect Son, willingly went to an ugly people, ugly like Nineveh. He willingly went, He proclaimed salvation, and not only proclaimed it, He died so that they might have it. And then, three days, three nights, and He rose again to show that our salvation was one. And so Jonah shows us a type. It's a foreshadowing of something greater to come. This is consistent throughout all the minor prophets. And so here's the lesson. We glorify God by examining ourselves, being examined, and then turning for our sin. But God brings glory to Himself by saving sinners. And here you go. If you are a Christian... You should never be in despair. This is why Paul is so intentional to say that even when those people die, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but we grieve as those who have hope. You see, our eyes are always, as one would say, one in this world, but the other is at the end of this world, where we know that God will restore all things, that He's working for our good and His glory, and that this is not the end, but that He has purposed us for another world. So do you have a habit of being in despair? Of being down? God's people should never be in despair. Yes, you mourn and it is rightful for you to mourn. But we don't mourn without hope. We have the greatest hope. 
doesn't matter what happens, there is hope because this is our God. Let's look at lessons in glorifying God from the book of Titus. Lessons in glorifying God from the book of Titus. The first thing we see is immediately you jump in the, to the book and we see that God receives glory as his people are properly led. You see, the first instruction that Paul gives is that Titus, this man, would go to the land of Crete, an island in the Mediterranean, and that he would appoint proper elders over the people of God, that he would appoint leadership over the people of God. If I can just summarize this for you, uh, for our time, the two main aspects of these men that Paul gives is that these men are to have strict character guidelines. They're to be men of one wife. They're to be men who are sober-minded, self-controlled. There are to be men who are hospitable, strict character guidelines, but then also men who have an ability to teach. These are the main aspects, just strict character guidelines and then an ability to teach. 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul also enforces the importance of good leadership. He tells Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see, through pastors and elders, God provides the church with a standard of godly conduct. It, it's not perfect men. These aren't perfect men. But these are men who display godly character, who provide an example for the flock, and then they protect against false teaching. Again, these are men who are able to teach and then rebuke what's false. Daily. Daily. In your workplaces and everywhere that you go, you're bombarded with people's ideas about who God is. Everybody has their own, right? And then what's demanded for the Christian life. And the pastor, according to Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is to be the man who protects you, who shepherds you, and helps you to see how God has designed you to live and how you are to walk with God. So God's people... God receives glory as they're properly led by men with good character, men who are capable of teaching, of teaching. But the other aspect in Titus in which God receives glory is through the proper functioning of all of us, of the faith community. Look at Titus chapter 2. And I do want to read these verses with you. They're always a helpful reminder for us. So let's look at Titus chapter 2. Verses one through four, verses two, uh, one through fourteen. As for you, speaking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Notice here that the proper functioning of the body prevents the name of God from being reviled, criticized. So, when you go out into the world, how you live can influence how people speak about God. 
Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Again, how we speak can cause others to be able to speak evil about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And notice the connection between these verses and where we arrive in verse 11. For, the preposition for, connects the verses before with what's going to follow. For, why you do all this, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. This is why it's so important that you see the connection between how you behave and how we behave as a body. And then verses 11 through 14. The reason you behave this way as a body is because the grace of God has appeared. God has brought salvation for us. So what Paul is saying is that the body functioning in this way, old men being respectable, Older women being faithful, teaching the younger women. Younger women being self-controlled, loving your husbands, uh, taking care of your home. Young men being self-controlled. The reason that happens is because you've been saved. It's not for super spiritual people. It's for Christians. And so as we look at the functioning of the body, it flows from having been saved by Christ. From the simple fact that God has worked in our lives. When we preached through this a couple of months back, however long ago it was, one of the challenges I gave at the end of this particular text is that all of you that week would go and seek out some intergenerational aspect of discipleship. You would call someone younger than you, you would call someone older than you, whatever it may be, and that you would seek to engage in some relationship regularly with somebody in the body who's you wouldn't normally interact with. And I was so excited to hear just a few weeks back that there were some younger moms who were calling some of our ladies from the Esther class and inviting them to a Bible study at their house. You see, this is what is supposed to happen naturally. Sometimes it's difficult and we have to arrange it. We have to plan for it. But this is what's to happen in the body. You ladies who have already raised two, three, four kids. You've lived with your difficult husband for 30 years. You are to love that younger woman and help her endure. Help her. Older men. You were faithful through your teenage years. So that you might be ready for your one wife. Are you helping those younger, younger men? Are you encouraging them in the passions that they're struggling with through these years? Are you telling them, if you've made the mistakes already, are you telling them all those things are a waste? You're wasting your life? You've experienced it. They may th- look at you like you're dumb or something like that. Don't worry about it. They're, they're 14, what do they know? Uh, 
Help them. Help them. God receives glory as his people are properly led and as the body functions properly, as the faith community functions properly and makes a good name for the Lord. Let me say this about the book of Titus. This is a summary, basically. We preach through it, but this is a summary. And then of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, very similar. I want to highlight and argue that Titus and 1 2 Timothy, they, they really highlight the major functions of the church. To teach, to educate, to protect the body, that the body might walk with the Lord. The odd thing is that they don't tell us about what color the carpet should be. They don't tell us whether we should have contemporary or traditional music whether we should have pews or chairs like this. They don't tell us whether we should bring the power team in and have them you know, present the gospel in that way. You see, according to the Bible, the proper function of the church is to teach the people of God, to protect the people of God from falsehood, that they would walk with God and glorify God, and that that life flows from salvation. From the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. It it bothers me profoundly. And I don't think this is just my insecurity. That we live somewhere. And many people in America do. Where there are tons of churches around here. And you can pick based on music style. Or based on who provides what programs. And you'll leave based on those things. When the purpose of the church is to protect your heart from falsehood. So that you might walk in truth. I wonder if that's your main prayer for the church, for your church, that it would walk in truth. According to these books, that seems like the most important thing, that it would walk in truth, that it would proclaim the gospel, and that the families, that everyone would function properly in the body. This seems to be, upon my reading of these these chapters, that this is the most important function of the church. Of the church. Let's move on to the parables. Lessons in glorifying God from the parables. Our main purpose in all of life is that we may glorify God through the transformation of our lives and the proclamation of that, the teaching of that to others. Let's look at these parables. We, we studied a, a couple uh, well, I'm going to review four parables this morning. First, we glorify God in acknowledging our helplessness. We saw this in a couple of places, and I will summarize these for you. Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. We saw a woman walk into a synagogue one morning who was bent over uh, like this. She walked into a synagogue. As many of you know, when you study this context, you realize that when people here would think if someone had a disability, then they probably had committed some sin that caused this, that God was cursing them or whatever it may be because of their sin. So many of the religious people simply ignored this woman. They really disdained this woman. And so she was separated from the rest of the faith community. She was despised. She was not acknowledged in many ways, probably oppressed. But she walks in. Jesus has the opportunity to teach at this synagogue this morning. And Jesus, being at the front of the synagogue with all the attention on him in front of the religious leader and everything, calls this woman over so that she might be at the center of everyone's attention. 
This woman, not able to do anything for herself, Jesus calls her over, and then he heals her. Well, the religious leader is angry. Very angry. He says, you're not supposed to heal on a Sunday, or a Saturday, excuse me, that was their Sabbath. But Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. You see, she is an example of the child of God. A woman who is helpless, despised by the faith community, not able to do anything for herself. She is an example of a child of God. Jesus brings her to the center of attention. And I believe this is why it's in the book of Luke, so that we can read it and see. Constantly, Jesus talks about it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who feel like they're self-sustaining, like they can do everything for themselves. Those who are religious, they feel like they've got it all right. These are the ones that will have great difficulty in entering the kingdom of God. And people of Crosspoint, it's easy to feel like we've got it together. We have access to as many Bibles as we want. We have access to all the religious study material we could ever ask for. We have all the food, all the clothing we could ever need. But do we acknowledge that truly, spiritually, we're helpless? We have nothing. This is what Jesus shows us in these Gospels. And the people that he works with and the people that he brings to the center of our attention as we read through. That these, the kingdom of God is for these So do you acknowledge that you're helpless? I heard a a story that I think helps us in this. There was a a pastor from a third world country who came over and was in an area that was highly affluent in the United States. And they were in a church that they were in a church, a mega church. And the man who was the pastor was, you know, walking around showing him all that they had in their church. And it was just the highest technology, beautiful sanctuary. And the pastor was very proud. And then this third world country pastor was looking around just in amazement at all that was there. had never seen anything like it. And the pastor at some point of that church said, we, you know, we pray for you and your people in their poverty. And the third world country pastor said, no, you don't understand. We pray for you. We pray for you. You see, it's easy in our affluence to think that we have it all. That we are the ones who have the right to God. And we might just miss it. That there is no one who has a right. We are helpless and it's God and His grace that will draw us to Himself. That will make us His children. So we glorify God in acknowledging our helplessness. Another illustration of this, the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee, a picture of one who has a relationship to God. Who has studied the Bible, who knows it well. He goes into the temple, and then the tax collector goes into the temple. And the tax collector, his simple prayer is, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he went away from the temple justified, rather than the Pharisee. We glorify God in acknowledging our helplessness before him. That we need him, and without him, we are nothing. And then we, lastly, we glorify God by living in light of eternity. There are two illustrations of this. Luke 16, 1 through 13. This parable concludes with, you cannot serve God and money. You see, we can only have one master. And if that master is not the Lord, 
then we are giving our lives to something else. You can only serve God or money. One master. You can only have one. And so I would just ask you this morning, what consumes your mind the most? And I think this will tell us. Is it the Lord, the one who provides? Or is it the material substance and what that will get you? Where that will bring you? All you have to do is ask the question. Don't try to justify it and get around it. What consumes your mind the most? And that will tell you what your master is. Who your master is. Luke 19, 11 through 27. This is the passage where each person is given a, a mina. Uh, an amount of money, and they are told, you need to go invest that wisely. You need to go make something of it. The master goes away to receive a kingdom. He comes back having received the kingdom, but there was one who didn't really like the way the master dealt with things, and so he just buried it. And then the master comes back and judges that one for having done nothing, for having no respect for the master. Let me, I want to conclude in this way. Because if I can be honest, I, I feel like we've talked about eternal realities, that we're thinking about heaven and hell. And this is where Jesus places the emphasis in these concluding parables of the book of Luke. We've talked about heaven and hell, but I don't know if we've gone into detail about what those look like. And so I want to make sure that that's very clear to all of us. So let's look briefly as we conclude about the two. These are your two eternal options. This is where you're headed. You're on a fast track to one or the other. The first is heaven. And we're just going to look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, and then several verses after. If you'll turn to Revelation 21 with me, and we'll look at these verses. Verse 1, John tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. One word simply described perfect. Perfect. Look at verse 8. As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The reason I read this verse in context of talking about heaven is to point out that only holy people will be in heaven. Only holy people will be in heaven. These others will not be there. Heaven is also said to be a place of comfort in Luke 16. It's also a place of rest. We, it's, it says we enter God's rest. The faithful enter God's rest in Hebrews. 
as we look at hell, we'll also say, heaven is the opposite. It is the place where we will dwell with God forever. He is the light of it. There is no need for light because God is its light. There's no need for a temple because, because He is the temple. It is a place of perfection. And then hell. Hell. It's a fiery furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice that many of these descriptions come from the Gospels. That's because Jesus speaks of it more than anyone else in the Bible. It is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm not sure what it means that the worm does not die, but it sounds really disgusting. And I know that it'll go, it means it will go on forever. Forever. It's eternal. It's a place of agony and unfulfilled longing. In that particular the passage, the one in hell says, Give me a drink. Just let it touch my tongue. And it's no. No. It's unfulfilled longing. It's a place of eternal punishment. Matthew chapter 25. But also, and this is very important, it is a place of God's righteous justice. Righteous justice. It sounds so harsh, but know this. It's not because people don't deserve it. Romans chapter 2. I want to read these verses for you. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges. You see, we become judges ourselves when we say, God, they they don't deserve that. We don't deserve that. You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, meaning evil. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you, do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's not a good God just so that everyone can get to heaven. God is a good God so that we might repent before His holiness and He will forgive. Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hell is a place of everlasting torment, of everlasting righteous judgment against those who do evil. And the reason I share this with you and describe both these places is because if we don't get a clear picture of what hell is, if we want to just dismiss hell and the punishment that we would receive for our sin if it were not for Christ, then the gospel is not so glorious. If there's no punishment, then what's so glorious and wonderful about the gospel and about forgiveness? It's so glorious and it's so wonderful because what we deserve for our sin against a holy God is death. And not just death, but everlasting punishment. So, we glorify God in acknowledging our helplessness. But we glorify God also by living in light of eternity. Which track are you on? 
Don't just assume on the riches of His kindness that He will let you in. That you will be with Him forever. Remember that passage. His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And repentance is not some simple, I'm sorry God. Yes, it is confession, but it is turning. It is turning. So once you repent, once you call upon Him, you will turn. And you will not be the same. As one has said, salvation is free, but it will cost you your life. It will cost you your life. So, cost point friends, all these things, it can seem so overwhelming, but please in the simplicity know that your purpose of all that you do is that you might glorify God through the transformation of your soul, of your heart, through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus, that He died for you, that you might know Him and have relationship with God. That is your purpose. And then you might share that with others. That is what's to govern every single aspect of your life. Everything. Is there anything that's off limits to God? I would ask you just to evaluate that this morning, to search your heart. Is there any aspect of your life where you're not allowing Him access to transform that and to use that for His glory and His name? I just want you to reflect. I want you to ask, is is your soul being transformed? Is the Word taking root? And is your life consistently being changed? You know, we do these checkups in every other aspect of life. We, We have job reviews. Some of us do. Most of us. We have... We have checkups at the doctor where someone else who's overweight can tell you that you're overweight and that you need to lose weight. Have you done a checkup on your soul? In your heart? Are you changing? Are you becoming more and more like Him? And then, those of you who would say, I'm not being transformed. In fact, there's actually no fruit in my life that I even know Him. I hope it's so clear to you. There's no third option. It's heaven, life with God, or it's hell. Life eternally separated for Him, from Him. It's His wrath. And it's not that God is angry. It's... Justice. You see, He's a good God. He's a just judge. And a just judge must punish evil. But His kindnesses are so great. If you will repent, if you will turn to Him, He will show you His kindness and His grace. And it is rich. It is good. So in a moment... I'm going to ask Christians, if you just search your heart, you can stand and sing, but at least search your heart. And then those of you who have not believed, I'm going to be here afterwards. I will be here. Please, come. I'd love to talk with you and walk with you through what it means to know Christ. So please, I'd invite you to come. I'll even stand here for a moment as we begin to sing and ask you if you'd like to come forward then. You're welcome. I will be here after if you'd like to talk more.
Let's pray. Jesus,